Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, my guest is the legendary rapper Fat Joe, whose career spans decades. As a young, was too much to cope with. Why you think motherfuckers nicknamed the cook's cook shit? Should have been called on robbery. That's him on the great Scott Storch production, Lean Back, one of his biggest hits in a career full of them. Fat Joe can never be counted out. He released his first album way back in 1993, and he's had more comeback hits since then than anyone you can name. He has a great new autobiography out called The Book of Jose, co-written with veteran journalist Shaheem Reed. In addition to his music career, the book is full of jaw-dropping street stories from his days as a teenage hustler in the Bronx. The night before we talked, Joe had a book event at the Apollo Theater, with hip-hop royalty from Dougie Fresh to Busta Rhymes performing, which says a lot about his status. And he even brought Shaheem, his co-writer, on stage, which is a rare gesture from a celebrity. Here's my conversation with Fat Joe. When you think about all you've been through and also how many people unfortunately you've lost in your life and how many people hip-hop has lost does it seem like a miracle to you that you're even just alive that's been the miracle that i'm alive before i ever rap before the world ever heard of fat joe they tried to kill me 30 40 times in my life you know so that's why i had to tell the story because i knew some people couldn't even believe it all the things i had to go through there's a story early in the book a guy you almost essentially got killed over like 20 bucks because you loaned a guy, what was it, 10 bucks, 20 bucks? 10 bucks. 10 and bucks. I kept bothering him and bothering him. And he shot me two times. I had a fear because at the time we were really running the streets and he probably thought I was really going to hurt him. He convinced himself. And one day he waited for me, July 4th, with this deranged look in his face. Gun in his hand, and at that, I still thought he was a punk. And I hit him in the face with a bottle of Diet Pepsi, and it wasn't enough. So he pulled out and shot me twice right in front of my mother. You never know what's in the mind of someone else. And so he was really, really scared for no reason, because I never would have did nothing to him, because I was making a bunch of money at that time. But fortunately, the fear made him react like that. I was thinking that there's... This quality, the same quality that made you a leader on the streets, where you had a hundred dudes following you around when you were in high school, is the same quality that's let you survive and thrive so long in hip hop to have hits spanning decades, which almost no one else has done. There's so few rappers that manage to sustain that, but it's all part of the same thing. It's some quality you have. What do you think? It is some charisma, some power, but how do you see it? It's courage, man. And every time, I, like my brother Rich Player says, whenever my back's to the wall, that's when I come out swinging the hardest. So it's just in me. In fact, I think when, it all, when it's all said and done, I like the challenge. I like feeling like it's over. I like feeling like 
everybody's giving up. I like feeling like they don't believe in me. And that's the fuel. That's the gas that fuels me to win. I think the first hint of that music could be a possibility was when you saw a famous rapper around. I think it might have been still been the 70s. Oh, yeah. The first rapper I ever seen lived in the next building from my grandmother. That was Mr. Ness from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. You got to understand there's three founding fathers of hip-hop. Africa Bambada, Cool Herb, Grandmaster Flash. My brother, Angel, was a crate boy who would carry vinyl to the block parties and jams for Grandmaster Flash. This is a fact. And so that's how close we are to the inception of hip-hop. That's nuts. Three fathers of fucking hip-hop <laughs> who invented this whole shit. One of them, my brother, was his crate boy with him every day. I don't know what... How much more credibility do you need than that? <laughs> I don't know. It came out last night when Mr. Ness came out. Unbelievable. That's the thing. People talk about this like ancient history about the block parties in the Bronx and the turntables. And it just feels like people see that in black and white now. But you were there. You saw that shit. As a kid, as a baby. Yeah. So when it all started, I was just a kid, breakdancing, graffiti, and it wasn't like I, I invented hip-hop. But I was born there. But Little Rodney C, the Fantastic Romantic, were from my block. Love Bug Starsky was from my block. All these guys, living legends, pioneers to the game. I'm talking about day one, come from my block. They had this rapper named Whip Wap, and he began, he smoked this Andrew Dust, and what we be doing, do the Whip Wap, Whip Wap. And he started doing this Dan Nine crap. In your mind, what was the real first hint, though, of you might have talent? Because you have the same story. Biggie, there's a bunch of people up to the modern day, who people who were in the streets, who were hustling, and quietly to themselves, including you, were writing rhymes, but thought hustling was your life, not rap. It took Diamond D and other people to pull you out of the streets and into music. Yeah, Diamond said they're going to kill you. He said they're going to kill you, and he pretty much begged me. Because I knew Diamond from graffiti. He used to write Z-Rock. And he would beg me, yo, bro, please get off the streets. Let me take you to the studio. I know you like to rap. Just put it on the music. And I did that. How far along were you as a rapper when he oh, kind of no, brought you Oh, no, I wasn't that good. I was just young. The other day, he sent me a clip to repost on Instagram in the story. And it was a clip of me. He took me to MTV and he introduced his hype man, his DJ. And then he was like, Fat Joe. <laughs> and so I reposted it. And I was like, wow, because I, I never saw it before I even had Flojo. And he texted me. He said, yo, I knew you were special. I knew you were special. You were saying on your first album, it's good. Flojo was the big hit. The album was represented in 1993, and I love that cover. When you look at that cover, it's like, that. that's 93, man. The pants, everything is... That's, that's 93 in a nutshell. The army jacket. The... That was before they had slim fit jeans, right? That's a fact. <laughs> but, 
But soon, <laughs> but soon after, and I think this is a, again one of the keys to your long career. Soon after the album came out, you were hearing Big L, who was your friend. You were hearing Nas. Especially rappers are monkey flipping with the funky rhythm. I be kicking musician inflicting composition of pain. I'm like Scarface sniffing cocaine. And you realized you decided you need to up your skills. That's a fact because otherwise I would have been out of here. You know what happened? There's always a shift in hip hop where a new style, a new sound comes out, and a lot of people who are like, oh, geez, they can't adapt to that style. Me, I'm very realistic. I was like, oh, shit, the game changed. If I don't step up lyrically, I'm out of here. People say the same thing about a few years earlier when Rakim came along. Be the greatest ever, to be honest with you. Like, for real, though. Not, and I'm not talking about greatest number 10. That guy was like a UFO. And when he came out, came in the door, in the I never let the mic magnetize me no more. It's right me, invite me, tighten me. I came in the door. I said it before. I never let the mic magnetize me no more. But it's biting me, biting me, inviting me to rhyme. Nobody was better than Rockin'. But Nas had a big impact on you. And it's funny we're talking about Nas. He's another rapper who's having a great late career resurgence. He's made those great albums with Hit Boy. And then you had 21 Savage saying he's irrelevant the other day. I have a feeling you have thoughts about that. I don't want to talk about that, man. Let's go somewhere else. And I don't know enough to really be commenting on it. We didn't want to get into the specifics of, of any particular dispute, but people are talking about generally that idea of relevance. What makes a rapper relevant? What does make a rapper relevant in your opinion? I don't know, man. I guess in this day and age is going viral. The drug of choice is viral. So they figure if you're not out here doing some crazy shit to go viral or some dumb shit or you're not relevant. And so that I would think that's what the youth think. Around that time was when Big L came into your life and he was incredible. Younger listeners need to go back and watch him, you know, freestyling, listen to his records, see him next to Jay-Z. Tell me about him and your kind of favorite memories of realizing just how good he was. As a person, I had the best times in the world with him. He was funny, he was witty, he was a degenerate gambler. <laughs> so he would gamble everywhere we went. But uh, he's a beautiful person. And as an MC from the first time Finesse ever brought him on stage, he killed every show. And years later, after he passed, people finally got to notice how incredible he was as a lyricist. Because they got the legendary battle with Jay-Z. Hey, yo, uh, brothers can beg and borrow. Still feel sorrow when Jay-Z like sorrow. Get in that ass, better luck tomorrow. I'm too much, nigga, so never should you rush. You need he got But shouldn't have died so young and just a beautiful person. So tell me about leveling up your skills for the second album. How did that work for you? For every album after. And for every album after. Practice makes, <laughs> yeah. practice makes perfect, man. And I wanted to be the best or compete against the best. So I would study everybody from Jay to Nas to Biggie to Snoop to everybody. I, no piece of everybody. And that made up the fat Joe. Now, KRS-One was a huge 
influence for you early on. There he was on Bronx Tale on Jealous Ones Evie. What was it like to go from this guy was your hero? <laughs> and so that's the part of that I keep telling you that book of Jose is about courage. And every time I, something happened to me, that most people would just run away. Imagine working with your idol, the guy you worship, the guy you're trying to be like. And if you listen to that record, I held my own on there. And I wasn't that good yet. <laughs> but I'm going with him ball for ball. I always step up to the occasion. And pretty soon, Big Pun came into your life. I love that he, he came to you as part of a group and immediately... <laughs> Like, when I say immediately, I mean within five seconds, you're just like, no, you, come with me, get in my car. And I took him right to the studio that night, and he jumped on two songs, and we completed Jealous Ones, because it was over. It was like 99% done. Put him on Say Word, put him on Fire One, and it was, the album was done. You write about it in the book, but what did you see in him? What made him special? Oh, a lot. He's one obviously. of the greatest lyricists ever. His cadence, his flow, his vocabulary he could be going 100 miles per hour rapping and would stop at, at a drop of a dime and be like snatch the moon out the sky and blow the sun away he would blow me and my people bringing hardcore there with hardcore there was he's incredible and i'm a hip-hop historian and so when i seen him i knew what it was when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. You said that at the studio, Battery, that Pun and Tony Sunshine pulled out guns and you got banned and that there is a whole story there. Pun was like a prankster and he would just play tons of jokes. And, and I, would, I had Battery, I, would, I loved that studio and I had it locked down for a year straight. And so they came in there one day with a propped gun that looked real, sound real, so Tony went and put an apple. There was an apple there. He put an apple on the engineer's top of his head. And they told him to stand still. And the guy was sweating bullets. The guy was nervous. And it was like, don't move. So Pun pulls out the gun and goes, bow. And so the guy dives under the board. He really believed that they was trying to use the apple as a target practice. Oh, my God. And, and it was just a big joke. But Battery was like, yo, you can never come in here again. <laughs> These guys are pranksters. He has one of the most famous lines, I would say, in all of hip-hop history. 
Dead in the middle. Dead in the middle of little. He, he didn't even want to do it on Deep Cup. He didn't even want to do it because he would do it like a joke. Dead in the middle of little. Like it was a joke. He would do it. Pack in the back in the back of the egg. Pack in the back in the back. Like, he would do it like a joke. It was a joke to him, but I forced him. I was like, I'm telling you, pun. That rhyme right there. That secret, I didn't know it was that legendary. That flow was beyond legendary. Dead in the middle of little, literally, little. Did we know that we riddle to middle, man, didn't do diddly. Here to be a cold day and how the day I take it now. Make no mistake. That was wild to me because he thought it was just like a tongue twister he'd say around for fun. And he thought he'd get made fun of, get laughed at for putting it in the song. Instead of being, instead of people being like, that's the greatest line in the history of rap, basically. It's one of the greatest group of lines in hip-hop music. Was he self-destructive with his health, or was he just, just couldn't control it? We just didn't know no better. I was right behind him. So Pum was like 600 pounds. I was like 450 or some wild shit. We didn't know. We were young. We thought you live a good life. You eat. You reward yourself with food. We love to this day. We have, I have issues with food, but not like that. Like I would die. I can't eat like that no more. But it's a shame, man, because we knew nothing about nutrition. We knew nothing about nothing. You went harder pushing Big Pun's career almost than you did yourself. You really got behind him and put everything behind him. And then when he passed, you said you were devastated for two years. That's a long time. Pressed. Going to see therapists, really going through it. And uh, two years later, I snapped out the depression. I kept beating myself up. What could I have done? Could I have made him lose weight? Could I have stopped him? Could I? And uh, it's real painful to watch my best friend die. And you said people, someone said that, oh, Fat Joe's going back to the projects. Yeah. One New Year's Eve, I went to visit my mother and father. They refused to move out the projects. And... I went there for New Year's Eve with him, and I came down the stairs, and nobody had no clue I was there. And four childhood friends that I paid their rents. I did anything you could do for them. I caught them just gossiping about me and talking about, I'm not going, I'm going to be back in the projects. I'm never going to make it. Pun was the one. And only one of them, my man, Jose Brighton, he was the only one that stood up for me. He was like, nah, Joey's a hustler. Joey's going to figure it out. You're going to figure out how to do it. But that was very painful. That was a very traumatic day for me. And until you got a certain phone call, even you were worried about your career. And then uh, Irv Gotti called you up. Yeah, I met Irv Gotti by chance just before Pun died. And we got along really well. And so he called me in the middle of the night. He was like, Fat Joe, it's Irv Gotti in my house phone. And I was like, yeah, come to the studio. So he told me I went down there, hit factory. He pressed play. It was a hit. It was what's love. And these guys couldn't miss. Hmm. And I was just like, wow. To this day, no one did nothing like that for me before. And so it just took me to a whole nother level after the depression. And I guess the original idea was that Ashanti was just demoing it for J-Lo. Yeah, because I think she used to, I'm not sure, but I think she used to write on some of those records for J-Lo. And so they were like, yo, get your sister J-Lo. And I was like, yo, but the girl on there sound fire. 
And this has happened many times in your career, the comeback. Are you ever surprised by the comeback or by the new hit or in your oh, mind? I'm always surprised. <laughs> Bro, I'm fucking dying for my life. It's like you in the middle of the ocean looking for oxygen. I'm dying and out of nowhere the wrecking come. Boom! <laughs> it's happened to me about four times. It's crazy because what I always hated was other people from the outside in saying, Oh, I knew that was coming. I knew you. Maybe they could see what I can't see. And of course, it's the What's Love video that has the famous, uh, it's the famous shirtless video. Uh, I did Cancun Spring Break. <laughs> so the record was starting to take off, but they have a spring break in Cancun. And I went out there with no shirt on. Fucking America love me. <laughs> yeah. I might have been the first Lizzo. I came out that motherfucker and they were like, they lost it. <laughs> Sales started going up. Everything was rising to the top. Crazy. Yeah, it's a great video. And then obviously the whole uh, Ja Rule, Ashanti, you, that just became a, a hit formula. Then Ja Rule was everywhere. When 50 Cent started his feud with Irv Gotti and Ja Rule, Ja Rule became overexposed. A lot of people in the industry were, seemed to be siding with 50. 50 was the new thing. But Irv had saved your career, and loyalty was ingrained in you. So there was no way you were not going to stick with Irv, even though you knew that was going to set you on a collision course with the hottest rapper in the game at that moment. Absolutely correct, brother. And so when everybody else, everybody else ran away from them, I stood closer. And because of my loyalty to them, and I'm helping my career and saving my life at the time. I go down with the shit. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you really did because you ended up losing $20 million potentially because you were supposed to have a line of Jordans. And a bunch of other kind of business, like, because you have to pick a side. If you did business with 50, who was the rising biggest rapper in the world, you couldn't do business with Fat Joe. When the VMAs, when we had that public fuel, I already had a Jordan sneaker coming out. And I get the call like, Big Joe, yo, I'm not into all that controversy and all that. We can't do it. Was it really Michael Jordan himself made that call? Yeah. Oh, my God. Was meeting. Now it's different. Now I watch how Khaled designs his sneaker and all that. He meets with the design team. And um, when I was talking to him, it was Michael Jordan in the meeting. What, was he cool? Was up to the moment when he dropped the line, was he cool? Michael Jordan was the coolest in the world. He still is. He just ain't into the controversy. He didn't want all that. How soon after the VMAs, and it was a whole thing, 50 tried to taunt you while you oh, were on stage? It might have been a day that, one day later, I got that phone call. Oof. I was in Jamaica. <laughs> I had a show in Jamaica, and I got that call. And I was just like, this can't be life. And then it took years to, to squash that beef, but you and 50 are friends now. Absolutely. Same person discovered him, discovered me, rest in peace, Chris Lighty. We seen each other at the funeral. Then we did a tribute at BET Awards, and then we just ended the feud right there. You mentioned DJ Khaled. It's interesting. I mean, you knew him way before he was DJ Khaled in all caps. He was part of your crew. You let where you let him into your crew, really. And... I thought the way you portrayed him was really interesting because I think people have like a cartoon in their mind about DJ Khaled. And you have him that he was making good A&R suggestions going back many years ago that he 
had a real artistic mind because I think people have this idea that oh he doesn't even really do anything. People who don't he know. just got nominated for five Grammys. It's he knows how to put the music together, structure it. He knows what a hit is sonically. He knows the right artists to do it. These artists would never even work with other people. And so let's not take away from his credit. He's a fucking legend. And again, this is like a this is Fat Joe as talent spotter because you saw that this guy had something before almost anyone else did. His charisma was infectious. From day one, I knew he was a special guy. Did he carry himself the way he does now? Did he have that? Same thing. Crispy? Same thing without the money. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump to the present a little bit, or close to the present. Tell me about All the Way Up. Nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. Because I was all the way down. Yeah. Just came out of prison. My sister came out of prison, Remy Ma. She did way more time than me, eight years. And I said, Remy, people like Remy, people like Joe. People love Fat Joe and Remy. We got a chance, like the string through a needle, of putting one out the park. Because the people, every time they had seen me and Remy, it was just big. And so we came up with all the way up, even though we was all the way down. <laughs> and I guess that would be a modern day lean back. That's crazy to recapture that feel. There's been times when you talked about retiring as a rapper, especially when you, when you turned 40. Now it seems like, is that out of your mind? Do you think you're just going to keep going? Yeah, I don't know. I think I've retired from rap, to be honest with you, brother, because I'm doing all these TV shows opening so many businesses, investing. But retire is a big word, and I'm still better than everybody, so I'm not really, there's no need for me to retire. Funflex called me out the other day for a freestyle. I gave some shit to shock the world. Like, he's like, well, I got a problem with, I got a bad case of the bees. Balenciaga, Bottega, bad bitches, beaches in the Bahamas. <laughs> Keep them on their toes. Give him that bobble. It does sound like, though, like you said, it sounds like you made some kind of decision to maybe, on some level, retire as a rapper. 27 years, I would go in the studio every single night if I wasn't on the road. Create this last... It's not that I don't love hip-hop. I worship music. It's just I'm getting better at other avenues of investments and opening businesses and diversifying the portfolio. But music is always... My first love. You've seen all these guys who become damn near billionaires, and you're, it's opened the door for you to look at that level. That's what you're looking at. Super facts. Super exactly. Tell me a little bit more about the TV show you're working on. What, how involved are you? The one about your life. That's the Showtime with Kenya Barris, Kenya Barris and Jesse and Yuli Terrero. That's about the book. That's the book. Bringing it on the screen. And there's nothing we will miss. It will be so authentic. You'll feel like you're there. If people are going to see that on the screen and be like, none of that was possible. This can't have happened. All the Goodfellas gunplay shit. Yeah, that was the fear of doing the book of Jose. Was people wouldn't believe it because we're in a different time. It's cameras, it's this, it's that. Even though crazy shit is going on in the news every night. I thought the part of the book that really moved me is you talked about you had an argument with your half-brother who you'd always considered a full brother, and then suddenly he said, oh, you're not even my real brother, and understandably, that was incredibly hurtful. And you were feeling suicidal. You almost drove your car into, like, a barrier. 
but then you didn't. And then you went and got a steak, and it was like the best steak you ever had in your life. And you said <laughs> that you realize the reason that you can never really feel suicidal is because life is too beautiful, even if it's eating a steak by yourself in the Bronx. And I thought that was beautiful. It's too beautiful, brother. Life is incredible. Every moment we get to breathe, we got to be grateful. We got to give all praises to God, because without God, nothing would be possible. And so many times, God swooped down and had divine intervention. So many times I was supposed to be dead, and God just came and said, nah, you bullet, make a U-turn. And said, nah, this guy. And so that's why I believe, I don't believe that God spared me to be the number one rapper. I believe he spared me to do philanthropy and help the people, inspire the people. And that's why I made this book of Jose, talking about my failures, my triumphs. I need people to learn from my mistakes. And it's so relatable to everybody. From my son, my firstborn being autistic, to my mother catching cancer the day I got signed. So many different things that people can relate to, that they can learn how to get over that pain. You've had a chance to look at your whole life so far. Have you thought about how you want to be remembered someday? There's a lot more stuff that's coming down. We got four TV shows this year alone. And I really want to be known as an American businessman. I want to be known as a Yellowstone fucking entrepreneur. Businessman that came from shit and made it to where he wanted to be. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Fat Joe. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. In the meantime... Download us wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us. Maybe leave us a nice review and five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, because that's always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.